Hello, book friends. My name is Jocelyn, and this is the Literary Therapist Podcast. I started this podcast because I love talking about books, and I love talking about therapy, and I thought putting the two together would be an interesting adventure. Thank you for taking this adventure with me as we go through realms far and fictional. Now, let's start our session. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. This does not constitute mental health treatment. If you or a loved one are struggling with mental health issues, please seek a qualified therapist in your area. Hello, book friends. Welcome back to Anne of Green Gables. We're rejoining Anne in chapter 13 called The Delights of Anticipation. This chapter is an excellent example of the way that Marilla keeps boundaries for Anne and holds Anne to the expectations and boundaries that Marilla has set for her. It starts out with Marilla kind of lamenting because she gave Anne a certain amount of time to go play with Diana, and it's a half an hour past that, uh, past the time that Anne is supposed to be back in. Marilla calls Anne in. And Anne comes running in talking about all the exciting things she learned from Diana. It's a really interesting scene at the beginning of chapter 13 because when Anne comes in, she's talking about there's going to be a Sunday school picnic next week. Uh, It's going to be in Mr. Harmon Andrews Field right near the Lake of Shining Waters. And Mrs. Superintendent Bell and Mrs. Rachel Lind are going to make ice cream. And I, I just think it's hilarious the way they identified women. They identified them most often by their husband's status or by their husband's name. At least the first four books of the Anne series. You'll know that there are multiple families in this area with the last name Bell. There are also multiple people in this area with the last name Andrews and the last name Pye, P-Y-E. And when there's more than one person, when there's more than one person with that last name who's married, they identify the women by the husband's first name. So they say things like Mrs. Andrew Bell or whatever, Andrews. This one's particularly funny to me because it's Mrs. Superintendent Bell. Obviously, her husband's name, first name is not superintendent. They're identifying her by her husband's position, most likely because they identify her husband by his position. So there's, you know, maybe an Andrew Bell and a George Bell and and whatever. And he's Superintendent Bell to Anne and Diana. So they say Mrs. Superintendent Bell. Um, And then Mrs. Rachel Lind. And I honestly think the reason they call her Mrs. Rachel Lind and not Mrs. Thomas Lind, which is her husband's name, is because Rachel is such a force in and of herself that she really has made this impression on society that she is her own person aside from her husband. And I I don't know. I just think that's funny the way that they identify it. I think that the author did a really good job of identifying Rachel Lind as being her own person. A lot of the women in this book are not identified as being their own people. So Anne says, they're going to make ice cream. Think of it, Marilla. Ice cream. Oh, Marilla, can I go to it? Marilla's response is, what time did I tell you to come in? Look at the clock. 
and Anne says, it's two o'clock, but the picnic, can't I go to the picnic? I've never gone to a picnic. I've dreamed of picnics, but I've never. And then Marilla interrupts her and says, I told you to come at two o'clock. It's a quarter to three. I'd like to know why you didn't obey me. Anne talks about how she got distracted. And then she was talking to Matthew. And I love the way Marilla responds to this because she doesn't ignore what Anne is talking about or what Anne is asking her, but she still holds Anne accountable. So she says, when I tell you to come in at a certain time, I mean that time and not half an hour later, and you needn't stop to discourse with sympathetic listeners on your way either. As for the picnic, of course you can go. You're a Sunday school scholar, and it's not likely I'd refuse to let you go when all the other little girls are going. This is a really good way of responding to the situation. She's telling Anne, when I tell you to be in at a certain time, I expect you to be here at a certain time. Children, adolescents, most adults need boundaries to feel safe, whether that's in their home or at school or in a job. We have boundaries for a reason. We hold each other to expectations for a reason. Part of that is safety and security. Part of that is so that we just know the parameters in which we're operating. Marilla tells her that you need to come in when I say you need to come in. Then she responds to Anne's response. She doesn't withhold any response to what Anne is asking about. She responds to what Anne's asking about meeting her need for reassurance and attention by saying, of course you can go. It's tied in. And I think it's a really good example of how you can tell somebody, I really expected this of you and respond to whatever their bid for attention is or whatever their request is. So often it seems like people need to, it's too often that people feel the need to withhold affection, withhold answers, withhold attention, withhold food or water or sex or whatever from somebody because that person didn't meet their expectations. It just isn't necessary in most situations, particularly with children and adolescents. It's important to close the loop on that, to resolve that because they're asking a question for a reason. They need or want an answer to it. Emotionally, they need an answer to it. They want an answer to it. And each question is a bid for attention. And it's also a bid It's an interaction where they're going to see how you react to them. It's important to react to these things in a really encompassing way. You were late for curfew last night. You're going to be grounded for three days, taking away the PlayStation, whatever. And yes, you can still go to prom or, and I'm sorry to hear that your friend was distressed. You needed to call me and tell me your friend was distressed and that's why you were late. You know, you can still hold people to expectations. You can still hold people to the boundaries, the rules, the laws, their job description, and be empathetic without crossing the line into this codependent dynamic that can happen where we let people off on things because they're having a bad day or whatever. You can just do it in a way that's firm. If you are in a healthy place and you're able to do that in a way that's calm and directive and bring your calmness to the excitement of the situation can make conversations go a lot more smoothly. Marilla does that. I think she does it really well. And then Anne has this reaction. So she's excited. She gets to go. Anne has this reaction saying, 
But Diana says that everybody must take a basket of things to eat. I can't cook, as you know, Marilla, and and I don't mind going to a picnic without puffed sleeves so much, but I'd feel terribly humiliated if I have to go without a basket. It's been preying on my mind ever since Diana told me. Again, here is Anne's desire to fit in, to be like the other girls, to not stand out. She's very cognizant of the social dynamics, social currency that she needs to have in order to successfully make friends and be a part of the social group. She wants to make sure that she's fitting in. The puffed sleeves is going to come up again and again and again for a while. It's not about the fashion It's about fitting in and looking like the other girls and not standing out. She's already different from them because she's an orphan. She was adopted. She didn't grow up here. All that type of stuff. Marilla says, don't worry about it. I'm going to bake you a basket, which I just, I know this is the expectation, right? We would expect Marilla to say, I'll bake you a basket. If Marilla didn't do it, we would expect Rachel Lind to do it because that's, you know, they take care of children. That's that's one of the things they do as adults is they want to take care of children. I just think it's really sweet that Marilla has already, in my opinion, this means she already knew about it. She was already planning for it. Probably Rachel said something to her about it or she's helping organize the picnic or something like that. And I don't know. It's just a sweet moment. And then Anne throws herself into Marilla's arms and rapturously kissed her sallow cheek. I just love these descriptions. They go to church the next day and Anne um, on the way home says that she grew actually cold all over with excitement when the minister announced the picnic from the pulpit. Such a thrill went up and down my back, Marilla. I don't think I've ever really believed until then that there was honestly going to be a picnic. I couldn't help fearing I'd only imagined it. But when a minister says a thing in the pulpit, you just have to believe it. Marilla says, you set your heart too much on things, Anne. I'm afraid there will be a great many disappointments in store for you through life. And this is one of my favorite Anne responses. Oh, Marilla, looking forward to things is half the pleasure of them, exclaimed Anne. You may get the things themselves, but nothing can prevent you from having the fun of looking forward to them. Mrs. Lynn says, Blessed are they who expect nothing, for they shall not be disappointed. But I think it would be worse to expect nothing than to be disappointed. (laughs) That's Anne. I mean, her entire life, basically. She spends learning the whole lesson of tempered anticipation. Marilla, this is an important piece of minutia. Marilla wore her amethyst brooch to church that day as usual. Marilla always wore her amethyst brooch to church. She would have thought it rather sacrilegious to leave it off, as bad as forgetting her Bible or her collection dime. That amethyst brooch was Marilla's most treasured possession. A seafaring uncle had given it to her mother, who in turn had bequeathed it to Marilla. It was an old-fashioned oval, containing a braid of her mother's hair, surrounded by a border of very fine amethysts. Marilla knew too little about precious stones to realize how fine the amethysts actually were, but she thought them very beautiful and was always pleasantly conscious of their violet shimmer at her throat above her good brown satin dress, even although she could not see it. This is a weird thing. If you've read a lot of historical fiction, like history books and stuff, they used to do this thing where they would set 
a lock of someone's hair in the middle of a brooch or like where a stone would go on a ring or something like a braid of hair. And then they would seal it in and put a bunch of stones around it and give it as gifts. And I've read this in Jane Austen, uh, particularly in Sense and Sensibility. I've read it in Anne of Green Gables. I've read it in a bunch of historical romances, which I'm far too fond of. So it was very common back in the day. It makes me wonder what would happen now if you were dating somebody and then they gave you a piece of jewelry that had a lock of their hair in it. I don't know if we'd find it to be very romantic or if that would be like creep city. Maybe wait till you're engaged to give people locks of your hair. Chapter 14 is the primary one we're going to be talking about here. It's a big chapter, even though it only takes place over the course of a couple of days. So Sunday, Marilla wore the brooch to church. The Monday before the picnic, so this is the next day, Marilla comes down from her room and she says... Anne, did you see anything of my amethyst brooch? I thought I stuck it in the pincushion when I came home from church yesterday, but I can't find it anywhere. Anne says, I saw it while you were away this afternoon. I was passing your door. I saw it on the cushion. I went in to look at it. You know, I pinned it to my dress to see how it would look. And Marilla's upset and asks her where she put it. And Anne is adamant. I put it back on the bureau. It's either on the pincushion or on the enamel tray. Marilla is really upset. This is a gift from her mother. You know, it's a family heirloom. And Marilla says, you didn't put it back. That brooch isn't anywhere on the bureau. You've taken it out or something, Anne. Anne is, again, adamant. I just don't remember whether I stuck it on the pincushion or laid it in the china tray, but I'm perfectly certain I took it back. Marilla says, okay, I'll go have another look. If you put the brooch back, it's still there. If it's not, I'll know you took it. So she doesn't find the brooch. This goes on and on. It's like multiple cycles of where did you put it? I didn't take it. Where did you put it? I didn't take it. It's not the best way to handle the situation, but Marilla's a fictional human and she handles things the best way she knows how. Anne's adamant, I didn't take it. I never took the brooch out of your room. And that is the truth. If I was to be led to the block for it, although I'm not very certain what a block is. So there, Marilla. And Marilla takes the so there as a display of defiance. And she says, I believe you're telling me a falsehood, Anne. I know you are. There now, don't say anything more unless you're prepared to tell the truth. Go to your room and stay there until you're ready to confess. And she does. She does that. And Marilla is going around. She's working through the evening doing all of her tasks and she's very disturbed. She's worried about her brooch. I mean, understandably, you know, I mean, amethysts aren't, well, diamonds are hugely overvalued in our current society. Anyway, amethysts aren't as precious as other stones, but they are valuable, especially when they're polished and set in a set in a piece of jewelry that's family heirloom and all that stuff. Marilla's really upset and she says, I don't suppose she meant to steal it or anything like that. She's just taken it to play with or help along that imagination of hers. She must have taken it. That's clear. For there hasn't been a soul in that room since she was in it by her own story until I went up tonight and the brooch is gone. So she's trying to rationalize and obviously had to do this, but why is she denying it? Um, it's a dreadful thing to think she said to think she tells falsehoods. It's a far worse thing than a fit of temper. She's upset and she's searching her room all through the evening. She's trying to look for 
any evidence that Anne didn't do this. And Anne persists in denying that she did it. Then finally, Marilla tells Matthew the story. The next morning, so Tuesday morning, the day before the picnic. She told Matthew the story the next morning. Matthew was confounded and puzzled. He could not so quickly lose faith in Anne, but he had to admit that the circumstances were against her. You're sure it hasn't fell down behind the bureau? Was the only suggestion he could offer. Marilla says, I've checked everywhere. I moved the bureau. She's taken it and lied about it. And then Matthew asks her what she's going to do about it. And she says, she'll she'll stay in her room until she confesses. Then we'll see. She still really doesn't want to believe that Anne has taken this. And she goes to talk to Anne again. And Anne's still saying, I did not take the brooch. I put it back. I don't know where it is. And Marilla tells her, you'll stay in this room until you confess. Anne, of course, is really upset about it because that means she'll have to miss the picnic the next day, which would mean that she would have to be out of step socially with all of these other children, primarily the little girls or what she's worried about right now is making friends. Wednesday morning, Anne says, I'm ready to confess. Let me hear what you have to say then, Anne. And this is Anne's confession. I took the amethyst brooch, said Anne, as if repeating a lesson that she had learned. I took it just as you said. I didn't mean to take it when I went in, but it did look so beautiful, Marilla, when I pinned it on my dress that I was overcome by an irresistible temptation. I imagined how perfectly thrilling it would be to to take it to Idlewild and play I was the Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald. It would be so much easier to imagine I was the Lady Cordelia if, if I had a real amethyst brooch on. Diana and I made necklaces of roseberries, but what are roseberries compared to amethysts? So I took the brooch. I thought I could put it back before you came home. I went all the way around by the road to the bridge across the lake of shining waters. I took the brooch off to have another look at it. Oh, how did it shine in the sunlight? And then, when I was leaning over the bridge, it just slipped through my fingers so, and went down, down, down all purply sparkling, and sank forevermore beneath the lake of shining waters. And that's the best I can do at confessing, Marilla. (laughs) It's, It's an interesting story, but I don't think it's true. Marilla's really angry. It's terrible. You are the wickedest girl I've ever heard of. And Anne agrees, yes, I suppose I am. (laughs) Anne says, yes, I suppose I am. And I know I'll have to be punished. It'll be your duty to punish me, Marilla. Won't you please get it over right off? Because I'd like to go to the picnic with nothing on my mind. And Marilla's like, you're not going to the picnic. Sorry. And Anne is obviously distraught. Um, She throws herself down on the bed. She's crying. And Marilla goes about her morning. Marilla's like scrubbing everything she can find to scrub, even the things that don't need cleaning. She's cleaning them. She goes to get Anne for lunch and then Anne won't come down. After lunch, Marilla realizes she needs to fix this brooch or she uh, she needs to fix this black lace shawl. She picks it up. The brooch is caught on the shawl, the lace of the shawl. It's caught in it. And Marilla's like, oh my gosh. And she says... Dear life and heart, said Marilla blankly, what does this mean? Here's my brooch safe and sound that I thought was at the bottom of Barry's pond. Whatever did that girl mean by saying she took it and lost it? I declare, I believe Green Gables is bewitched. I remember now that when I took off my shawl Monday afternoon, I laid it on the bureau for a minute. I suppose the brooch got caught in it somehow. 
Well, this is the most important part. This is why I wanted to talk about this chapter so much. Marilla goes directly to Anne and tells her, Anne Shirley, I've just found my brooch hanging on my black lace shawl. Now I want to know what that rigmarole you told me this morning meant. So Marilla goes immediately to Anne. She does, she's probably feeling a little embarrassed and frustrated and maybe angry with herself for being so harsh with Anne and so adamant that Anne took it. But she does go to Anne and tell her I was wrong. Anne says, why you said you'd keep me here until I confessed. And so I decided to confess because I was bound to get to the picnic. I thought out a confession last night after I went to bed and made it as interesting as I could. And I said it over and over so that I wouldn't forget it. But you wouldn't let me go to the picnic after all. So all my trouble was wasted. Marilla, now remember when we started this book, Marilla didn't have much of a sense of humor or she didn't show it. Marilla had to laugh in spite of herself, but her conscience pricked her. And you do beat all. But I was wrong. I see that now. I shouldn't have doubted your word when I'd never known you to tell a story. Of course, it wasn't right for you to confess to a thing you hadn't done. It was very wrong to do so. But I drove you to it. So if you'll forgive me, Anne, I'll forgive you and we'll start square again. And now get yourself ready for the picnic. This is extremely important. And it's something when I worked with children and families that I would tell parents all the time. It's something that the people I know and I regard as the best parents I've known have done. We're all human. We're going to be wrong. There's going to be times when we think our kids did something or think somebody did something that they didn't do. And then hopefully eventually we, t- we find out that we're wrong. And when we find out that we're wrong, or if we have a fit of temper and we yell at somebody and we didn't mean to, or, you know, whatever it is that we did that we need to apologize for, it is really important to apologize. It serves two purposes for us. One is admitting that we did something wrong and apologizing to the person we wronged. It just shows a lot of self-knowledge, self-awareness, humility, and it shows that we're human. When we apologize to children and adolescents, it shows them that it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a fit of temper. I mean, we prefer not to have people yelling or hitting anybody, obviously, but we can show them it's okay. It is a way of co-regulating children. When you apologize to a child in a calm tone of voice and you make the apology about the situation and about them and not about yourself and you are calm when you do it, it helps regulate the child's emotions. They hear your calm voice saying, they hear your calm voice saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong please forgive me. This is the second time in this book that Anne's been apologized to. The first time was Rachel Lind admitting she was wrong and now Marilla admitting she was wrong. And it's really important for children to hear adults say they were wrong, partly because it helps co-regulate their emotions and their nervous system. The second part that I think is even more powerful than the co-regulation is that they then get validated 
right? When you, when you snap at a child or yell at a child or accuse a child of doing something or invalidate a child's feelings or whatever, you're putting them in this situation where, especially for young children, but I think a lot of adolescents too, they don't understand why they don't understand what's going on. Anne doesn't understand fully in this situation why Marilla is insistent that Anne had to take it. Anne doesn't realize, oh, Marilla's really worried about her brooch and Marilla, you know, it's a family heirloom and she can't think of any other reason it would be gone because Anne and Marilla are the only two people who go upstairs in this house. Anne's not thinking all of that. Anne's worried about herself. That's okay. Children worry about themselves. We teach them to worry about other people as we help them co-regulate their emotions, as we help them think about what it would feel like for them to have something happen to them. We teach them empathy and things like, I mean, empathy is a whole thing. It can be, it's hardwired and it's taught. It's a whole thing. But when you apologize with a child to a child, an adolescent for doing something wrong, you're validating that they're not crazy. So if you imagine Anne in this situation is absolutely sure that she does not, she did not take this brooch. She put it back. She knows she put it back. Where could it be? But I didn't take it. I didn't take it. She says it over and over and over again. I didn't take it. But Marilla's punishing her for taking it. And that puts Anne in a position of feeling like, am I am I crazy here? Am I going insane? Am I losing my mind? I didn't take it. I'm being punished. It causes anger, resentment, frustration. If this type of dynamic persists in a family's household, then it can cause a lot of angry outbursts. It can cause high anxiety, perfectionism, eating disorders. I mean, it's all sorts of things when When children don't feel like their home environment is stable, when their emotions aren't validated, when they're not treated like a whole person, and when adults don't apologize for and explain that they were wrong about things, it really does things to the developing brain that are very, very difficult to treat later on. It's one of the types of trauma that is the hardest to treat. Marilla immediately went to Anne. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. If you'll forgive me, we can start square. And you shouldn't have apologized. You shouldn't have admitted you did it because you didn't do it. But that's my fault too. So Marilla owns her part of the whole situation and has the humility and grace to say, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And Anne gets to go get ready for the picnic And that resolves this trauma. If this situation had happened and Marilla did not apologize to Anne for it and just suddenly showed up with the brooch, oh yeah, I found it somewhere, what of it, wore the brooch to church the next Sunday and didn't say anything about it, then that further invalidates Anne's, kind of invalidates her existence. Like, I'm not important enough for you to apologize to. You blamed me. You put me through this. You wouldn't let me go to the picnic. You punished me for all of, for this thing I obviously didn't do. And now you won't be honest about it. You won't apologize for it. You won't treat me like a human being with feelings and emotions and neurochemicals and everything that are being affected by this situation. 
it is the most important thing to do is to apologize. Now, the apology needs to be calm, clear, and direct, and it needs to be concise. It is not a good apology to go if Marilla went to Anne and was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible person. Oh my goodness. I I shouldn't have done this. I'm horrible. I know you'll hate me forever. Oh my gosh. Could you ever forgive me? I'm the worst, right? Like, okay, way to make it about you, Marilla. It's not a good apology. Don't apologize that way. Your emotions when you're apologizing are your business and not the other person's business. An apology is, I am so sorry. What I did was wrong. Please forgive me. I am so sorry. I understand that what I did was confusing and frustrating and wrong. Please forgive me right? Or Rachel Lynn's apology, which was, didn't use the words, I apologize, or I'm sorry, but was, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said what I said. I'm too outspoken. Don't pay any attention to me. And then let's move forward with our relationship. There are only very, very few situations in which the apology can be, I'm sorry you felt. I'm sorry I made you feel. An apology is about the other person. It's about admitting that we're wrong. It's asking for forgiveness. Okay. You can do that in a lot of different ways. I've read so many different books where there are so many different types of apologies. Some of them are not even verbal. If you've ever read Harry Potter, you have read probably 15 nonverbal apologies between Harry and Ron. You don't say, I'm sorry I made you feel. I'm sorry you felt. It is the apology is for the action. The only time that I think it's acceptable to say, I'm sorry I made you feel or I'm sorry if you felt is when what the person's upset about is actually not something you did to them. I left a high demand religious community about 10 years ago. I met up with a friend from there about a month or two, maybe it was six months or more after I left the community, I met up with somebody who was a close friend of mine who made it very clear that she was disappointed in me and that our entire relationship was basically over because I left this community. And I spent the entire time consoling her for a decision I made for my own mental health. I, in that moment, used, I'm sorry if you feel right? I'm sorry if you feel upset about this. And that was it. I'm not going to apologize for making a decision for my good mental health. I never said I didn't want to be friends with the person. I never said I didn't want to be friends with any of them. I made a decision not to participate in the group anymore. And that ruined all of those friendships. Basically, all those friendships went away. Because all of them felt offended by my leaving and by the way I left, but I'm not going to apologize for that because that is not something I did to them. That is a decision I made for myself. You know, this is why I don't think people should apologize if they are saying no to a party invitation. Thank you for the invitation. I'm unable to attend. That's it. Now, if your party invitation is to your sister's wedding, then you probably owe an apology or an explanation. But that's the only time that it's really acceptable is when it's about something that actually didn't harm them in any way. Or if it's about you holding a boundary for yourself. If you tell somebody, and this is actually a boundary that was set with me once, 
I, in college, used the word stupid a lot. I would say, oh, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. That, And I didn't think of it as insulting. But when you use that word over and over again in conversations with people, especially with the same people, they start to think you think they are stupid. And the person said to me in private, I would prefer it if you didn't, I don't even know what the exact words were, but basically I would prefer it if you didn't say, don't be stupid because it makes me feel like you think I'm stupid. Not my intent, but it was the impact because impact is greater than intent. I was pretty embarrassed by that, uh, by that boundary being set. And if I had reacted in anger, I don't remember exactly how I reacted, but I didn't get angry and I did stop using that phrase. If I had reacted in anger, that person would have been justified in saying to me, I'm sorry you're angry, this is my boundary. And they wouldn't have even needed to say, I'm sorry, you're angry, because why are you apologizing for setting a boundary, a good boundary? When you're making an apology for something you did that was wrong, for an assumption you made, something you said, something you did, something like the situation with Marilla and Anne, you say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me, or I apologize, or... I shouldn't have said that. You know, you say something to make it right and you make it about the situation and the other person. You don't beg and plead and cry. All those theatrics in apologies like that, it's just, it makes it about you, about your emotions, your experience, your whatever, your psyche. And if you're the one apologizing, it's not about you. Apologies are for the person you offended and for us as well, but that's our process internally. We process that with our therapists, with our spouses, with whoever, not with the person that you're apologizing to, especially if it was a huge offense. It's one thing if bump into somebody and you spill their coffee, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm such a klutz. Okay, fine. You might say that. But if you really offended somebody or like with Anne and Marilla, where Marilla repeatedly accused Anne of doing something she didn't do and wouldn't listen to Anne, that is when it needs to be a clear, concise apology. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I removed the punishment I imposed upon you. I don't think people know how to apologize. I don't think people realize that you need to apologize to children I don't think people understand co-regulation, which is when parents use their or any caregiver or adult, anybody can do it really. But with childhood, we talk about caregivers. You use your calmness, your, you know, you bring calm into the little one's chaos. So you come into the situation, they're upset and crying. And you. this is that mom tone of voice we hear. Oh my gosh, honey, how are you? Okay. Okay. Everything's fine. And you know, you pick the child up and you put them on your lap or you cuddle them or whatever. And part of that drawing somebody into a hug to comfort them, especially with small children, that is part of co-regulation, especially with small children. They can feel your heartbeat. They can feel your voice when you're talking, that like vibration in your chest, and that helps soothe them. It starts with infants. Infants need to be picked up and cuddled and held and rocked for multiple reasons. It's not just a diaper change, feeding them, or because they're tired. It is because of that co-regulation of their heartbeat, co-regulation of their emotions, of their distress, of their being cold. I mean, there's so many things. 
that go into co-regulation and co-regulation is a huge part of attachment. If you can co-regulate with a child, you can help stabilize their world. That's what Matthew and Marilla and Rachel are doing with Anne. They're co-regulating by saying, it's all right to say you're wrong. I was wrong. I'm not going to gaslight you about it. I was absolutely wrong. You know, Matthew does this by listening to Anne. He sits and listens quietly and he's a sympathetic listener and all that. And that is a part of co-regulating for her as somebody who sits and stays and listens and responds. Somebody who isn't telling her how annoying she is. It's a big thing it's a big part of why Anne ends up being okay in the end because she's getting all this co-regulation she never got before going through this major development phase. She's heading into it. Puberty is basically toddlerhood all over again. Like adolescents are learning how to be in the world and how to think in the world and how to reason in the world. And Anne's going into that period while she's experiencing all this co-regulation, boundaries, guidelines, rules, empathy, being valued as a person. It can change the way that they, that her life goes. So it's just really important to ensure that you apologize when you're wrong, even to a child. I'm going to just end this episode with wrapping up the chapter. So Marilla tells Anne, you know, get ready for the picnic. Anne goes and gets, she's so excited. She gets ready for the picnic. And it says, that night, a thoroughly happy, completely tired out Anne returned to Green Gables in a state of beatification impossible to describe. Oh, Marilla, I've had a perfectly scrumptious time. Scrumptious is a new word I learned today. I heard Mary Alice Bell use it. Isn't it expressive? Everything was lovely. That evening, Marilla told the whole story to Matthew over her stocking basket. I'm willing to own up that I made a mistake, she concluded candidly. But I've learned a lesson. I have to laugh when I think of Anne's confession, although I suppose I shouldn't, for it really was a falsehood. But it doesn't seem as bad as the other would have been somehow. And anyhow, I'm responsible for it. That child is hard to understand in some respects, but I believe she'll turn out all right yet. And there's one thing certain, no house will ever be dull that she's in. I just hope for all of you that you can learn to accept your human failings. And I hope that you have people in your life who are willing to own up to when they're wrong or when they've believed something false about you or they've wronged you in some way. Session over.